Well, today we, uh, we begin a brand new sermon series uh, through an Old Testament book. I bet you'll never guess what we'll be studying, the book of Daniel. Uh, and uh, no, we're going to be in the book of Esther. You, no one laughed. That was really sad. Online, they all laughed. Uh, they put the track in. Uh, it's a wonderful story, the book of Esther. Uh, one of two books in the Bible, actually, uh, named after a woman, along with Ruth. Uh, and it's tucked between the book of Nehemiah and the book of Job. If you now just grabbed a Bible and you're searching for that, so why don't you turn there? Maybe you're wondering, uh, you're here and you're like wondering, is this random? Like, why, why Esther? Uh, why this particular book? Uh, well, first of all, uh, one of the things, one of the things that we desire to do here um, at FEC is teach through entire books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse. And so last year, uh, for example, and we saw this during the video, uh, we studied through the book of Philippians, verse by verse. Uh, and before that, uh, we studied through the book of, of 1 Peter. And so uh, I just thought, well, it's time for an Old Testament book, right? Uh, we did two New Testament, now it's time for Old Testament. Uh, but even beyond that, really, uh, the, the real reason I chose Esther is because um, as I was just working through it, um, searching uh, for, for different books that we could go through and exegete this, this year, um, I chose Esther because of how relevant I believe it is for us at this particular cultural moment that we're in. Um, you don't have to watch much news uh, or be on social media for too long at all to know that our world is pretty chaotic right now. Um, things are so complicated. There's so much confusion. Um, I actually was just trying to think, like, is there literally one thing, one thing that we all agree on? I still can't think of anything. So why don't you, if you had to words, maybe you could help me. Um, we debate and argue over everything. It's so complicated, politically, the left, the right. Right now, vaccine, no vaccine. Booster, no booster. Second booster, you know, is that even an option? Mask, no mask. Is the earth getting warmer or is it getting colder? Um, are we racist or not racist as a society? What is gender? What is sexuality? Uh, what should be taught in schools? Should schools even be open right now? Should we take our kids out of schools because of what's being taught in them? Um, is that guy over there, is he woke? Should that girl over there be canceled? Do my emotions have anything to say about truth? And can we even know truth at all? And honestly, uh, we've come to the point in our world where personal preference has now become the king. Uh, which means that everything, because that's true, everything in our world has the right to be redefined. Everything is subjective. What you want to be true is true. That's our current cultural reality. We now live in a pluralistic society where more and more, it seems, like anything goes. It's just about whatever you feel. And of course, as followers of Jesus, all of this has truly created a sense of pressure for us. A lot of us have been private about this, but at the dinner tables, we've been having these private conversations. Not out loud, not very vocally, most of us, but it's created pressure. Like, what are we supposed to do? Um, how are we supposed to live amidst this type of world? With so much confusion, with so much conflict, what's next for me? What's next for our family? Do we assimilate, compromise, conform, and just go along with the world? Or, on the other side, perhaps we just choose to separate from the world. Totally. We throw up our hands, say, it's gone too far, life is too hard, it's too crazy, the world's crazy, the pressure is too strong, and so let's create like a holy huddle for ourselves and stay safe with a bunch of people who think just like us. And then on top of that, amidst all this chaos and confusion, our trials, our difficulties, the struggles that we've been in in this season, the other question for us as followers of Jesus is, where is God in all of this? Is he still with us? Is he still at work in our lives? I've even questioned, God, like, what are you doing? Is this punishment? Is it your good hand? What's happening? Things seem hopeless. They seem to be getting worse. And so where are you in all of this? And it's into this complicated system 
of multiple worldviews, specifically pluralism, and questions about where God is in it all that Esther helps us. Because she and God's people actually faced very similar circumstances than we're facing today. And so my hope in studying Esther is that we learn what it looks like to live rightly in a world that doesn't acknowledge God. And on top of that, that we learn that there is a proper response as followers of the Lord to when God seems unseen, absent, and distant in our lives. See, what's so amazing about Esther is that God is not actually even mentioned one time in this entire book. Actually, the idea of religion is, is only hinted at one time. I believe it's Esther 4. It refers to fasting, but to what God, it doesn't even say. God isn't mentioned. Religion isn't mentioned. But God's fingerprints, if we look carefully, are everywhere throughout this book. And seeing that reality in our own lives, I believe, brings us so much power and so much change. So with that, we're going to jump into this book. Today, I'll let you know from the very beginning, it's largely introductory. Uh, there's a bit of history today. I'll say a lot of history. Okay? Uh, I'll share about the world of Esther. And then we're going to work through this passage pretty much verse by verse and, and, and dig out a concluding application. And but, but before we do all that, uh, let me just pray for us, uh, particularly for this sermon series itself. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we need your help. Um, God, you know, uh, I need your help. We've talked about this. <laughs> um, Holy Spirit, would you lead me, but also would you lead us as a gathering, as a church? Uh, would you encourage us in the places that we need to be encouraged? Would you convict us in the places that we need to be convicted? Help us to see you uh, amidst it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, let's begin first by talking about the world of Esther. Uh, to, to feel the weight of this story that we're jumping into, it's so crucial for us to have both a historical context of what's happening and a biblical context. And so at this point in the storyline of God, God's people had been defeated. They have been exiled, actually. If you're familiar with the story, uh, the Babylonian king, his name was Nebuchadnezzar, had attacked Jerusalem. He burned down their holy temple, uh, just decimated it, and he exiles the Jews. This happens in 586 B.C., okay? And we know that the Babylonians, they actually uh, perfected the art of the exile, there were strategies before this on how do you conquer a people, but the Babylonians found the secret. And so what they would literally do is go into a city, attack it, decimate it, but that wasn't it, enough. They would then remove the people from their city and hike them back to their homeland. And the reason they did that was for the purpose of assimilating them into the culture. And so what would happen is within a generation or two, it might not be the parents or the grandparents, but the kids and the grandkids, they would totally assimilate into that culture and your culture would be gone. You'd be forced to learn their language. You can no longer speak your own. You're forced to worship their gods. You could no longer worship your own. You'd learn new worldviews, a new system, new values, new education, until eventually you just looked exactly like them. And at that point, your culture was gone. You no longer existed as a society. And so this is what the Babylonians were in the process of doing with the Israelites, in that process. And it's honestly, um, it's very difficult to exaggerate the significance of the exile in shaping the Jewish people and their cultures. Because it literally marked the end of ancient Israel as we know it. The, the priest system, the sacrifices, the temple, it decimated it. Things were literally, from that moment in history, never the same for the Jews. Even to this day, it, it affects them. Well, 
uh, about 50 years pass after the exile. And Babylon is then conquered by a new empire, and that's the Persians, led by King Cyrus the Great. He was actually the founder of the Persian Empire. And it's interesting, even though his motives were questionable, after Persia takes over, we know that Cyrus permits the Jews to leave, to leave Persia, to go back to Jerusalem. He gives them permission to rebuild their temple, actually, to reestablish their city. He actually gives them some finances to do that. But interestingly enough, for whatever reason, we learn that actually very few Jewish people made the decision to leave, to go back home. So more time passes. About 60 years after that, we're about 110 years removed from the Babylonian captivity, and we arrive at the time of Esther. There's a new king now. Cyrus is gone. Darius is gone, the next king. There's a new king. And so in all this, there were, of course, some, some, some big, big overarching questions for the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Things like, is, again, is there still a future for God's people? Um, is God still for us? Is, or is he forever against us? Is his hand of judgment upon us? And things like, how are we as God's people supposed to see ourselves in that we are now a minority group, a marginalized people, outcasts socially, who are, who are totally scattered, rather than being all together surrounding the temple in the nation of Israel, as was this case for so long. So there's these big questions. And so in that, what happens? God graciously speaks through his prophets and speaks to us through the scriptures. So first and second Chronicles, the book of Haggai, the book of Zechariah were written to re- encourage the remnant people who were left in Jerusalem, those Jews. Then there's Ezra and Nehemiah, who, which were written to record the process of the Jewish people going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the wall, the temple in Jerusalem, and reinstituting their, their faith in God through the temple. And then Esther is written. This book that we're going to be studying in the next nine, ten weeks together was written for those who did not return to Jerusalem, but who were still scattered, still in exile, living in the walled city of what it was called Susa in Persia. You're going to see that this is a great story, full of all sorts of awesome characters. There's a hero, there's a villain, there's drama, there's irony, there's comedy. It has a a great ending as well. It'd make a really good movie. But beyond the story itself, what we're going to see, at least my hope is that what we'll see behind the story is a really great God. That against all odds, all odds, are people who, who literally not figuratively, literally had no hope, living under a ruthless empire and a ruthless king, they get delivered. So with all this in mind, let's start walking through this story. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. God's word says this. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces... Huge area of land, by the way, almost as big as the United States. Gigantic. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So, let's pause there for a moment. With these opening words, the author uh, transports us to the very earliest days in the Persian Empire. And all the details that the, that the author is providing for us right out of the gate here, including the rest of this chapter, we're going to see all these names, tells us very clearly that the author is writing an actual story. Actual events that took place. This is a factual history. Okay, it's a recording of history. It's not fiction. 
And the story we see is set in Susa. We know that it was one of Persia's four capital cities. And it largely takes place, the story, in the court of this new Persian king, Ahasuerus. Okay? Or, uh, better known by the majority of you, probably by his Greek name, Xerxes. Okay? Xerxes. Now, history largely remembers Xerxes uh, as the Persian king who unsuccessfully led two Greek invasions. Okay? Maybe some of you remember the movie 300. Um, I can't recommend it to you. That wouldn't be good of me to do. But if you happen to you know, want to watch that movie, see 300, uh, you could watch it. All right? But even though he, he failed, okay, even though he failed in Greece, Xerxes, we actually know that while he was the king of Persia, while he was the emperor there, Persia was at its peak, its highest of highs. They had conquered an enormous amount of land. They had total control over the known world. He was ambitious, very intelligent, a brilliant tactician, a warrior. Um, but he was also known as being extremely jealous um, and a ruthless, ruthless dictator. And so the text tells us here that it's the third year of his reign, okay, of Xerxes' reign. He was 35 years old, by the way, okay? and it's uh, 483 B.C., and here's the setting. Okay? Again, Xerxes is a young king. He started ruling when he was 32. He's 35 years old in our story. Persia, we know, is in conflict with the Greeks. This is important. We know that his father, Xerxes' father, had already gone into battle against the Greeks and he had been defeated. And so now, Xerxes has brought the troops back, if you will. He's allowing the empire to, to rest, okay, to settle, before they're going to go back and fight again. And so, this banquet that Esther records, this 180-day, can you imagine a 180-day party, by the way? Some of you have been like, you party on the weekend, right? back in your past. Right? But a six-month party, could you imagine? That's what this is. But rather than seeing it as like a party, it's more of a council, actually, where Xerxes was taking the time strategically to meet with his nobles, with his politicians, with his military leaders in his capital city to rally support and, and to plan the next Persian invasion of Greece. And so he's taking this time, six months, to display his wealth, his power, his glory, He's doing this to unite the leaders of the empire once again. He's trying to gain their loyalty. Okay? Follow me. Okay? I know you fell under my father, but it's going to be different with me. We're going to go in and conquer. What, you know, here's vision. He's casting vision to them. That's what this is all about. And so it's right for us to say this party was actually a very strategic political recruitment okay? with a lot at stake. It was extremely important for the empire moving forward. And you can actually read about this outside of the Bible, by the way. This is historical record that this feast took place. So now we get to verse 5. It says, And when these days were completed, that's the 180-day party, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast, another one, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And then it goes on, if you have a copy of God's word in front of you, it goes on to describe that feast. Beautiful curtains, linens, gold, silver, marble. People are, you know, drinking out of gold cups, right? It's, it's great golden chairs they're sitting in. And then look at verse 8. It says, and drinking, they're drinking the king's wine, and drinking was according to this edict. This is a, a, a command Directive of Xerxes. He says, There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. It's quite a command, right? Can you imagine? Be like, here's the party. Everything's open to you. And here's the rule. We have one. Do whatever you want. Pretty good. <laughs> okay? So, the 180 days goes by. We read here there's this final dramatic seven days of feasting uh, in which all people, not just his officials, 
the entire general public is in, invited to attend. And who wouldn't show up to that party? They're all there. And the text is clear. It's just totally over the top. The, the best of the best comes out. The king's choice wine is there, right? There's no 7-Eleven wine there, right? No 7-Eleven. No CU Mart. And the king's orders are, again, do whatever you want. Don't hold back. Xerxes, again, he's displaying not just his power to the officials this time, not just to the military leaders, but now to his world. I am all-powerful. I have ridiculous wealth. And we're the most dominant force on the planet. And then verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast. It's a side note here that's very important. Queen Vashti, his wife, also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that's a very nice way of saying he was drunk out of his mind, he commanded, and here we go, I'll butcher this, but I'll do it for you anyway. Okay, Muhammad, Bistha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zithar, and Sarkars. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring, this is the order, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, um, I think it is important to know that um, actually what we see here, it wasn't typical because it was not historically typical for men and women to party separately. And if you were in college, you know, you know, it's, this is why, like, I, I know this from past, okay? But to get guys to go to the club, you see it on the start. It's like women are free, right? And in words, no, no admission. Come on in. Why do they do that? So that guys come, right? And so it wouldn't be very exciting to be like, hey, everybody come, and we're separating the girls and guys. Like, that's like sixth grade, right? This is an adult party. And so it wasn't typical to separate the guys and the girls, but most commentators believe that they did this They agree on this because there are just so many people there. And it was just too chaotic. But now, because it's separate, men and women, and there's a lot of drinking going on, now Xerxes wants his queen to be with him. But again, he is very drunk. And we have to be really careful here, and actually throughout the book of Esther, to not read too much into what's about to happen because There isn't a lot of detail given, but we can assume clearly from the context that King Xerxes did not have good intentions here in inviting Vashti to this feast. Um, Again, he's been drinking with his friends for days. And so most scholars, it's almost unanimous, agree that his calling of the queen now was likely going to lead to some form of sexual humiliation. In fact, um, almost all of the early Jewish commentators suggest that what Xerxes was really doing is commanding his wife, his beautiful wife, to come before him and his other powerful men um, with no clothing, um, to stand before him and his other leaders um, naked, even though the author does not say that directly. And so this gives us some real insight into the cultural climate that we're in and the scene that we've gone into. Vashti, though his wife, was not the king's friend or his companion. She was his property. He saw her as an object, only there for his pleasure. Again, it's not a good environment. It's not a good scene here. It's very dark. And so the king's subjects show up to her, tell her what the king wants, and perhaps surprisingly, she boldly says no, which becomes a very, very big problem because no one says no to the king. No one. Because remember the context here, especially the context we're in. Ahasuerus is displaying his wealth and power 
in order to gain support from these other men and military leaders, from his government. In effect, he was saying or trying to communicate with this long feast that, hey, look at what you see. You can have some of this. Life is good. It can always be good if you get behind me and my plans. He needed these men to obey. This is important. He needed these men to obey his commands as they went into war. And so here is the great irony that we see right from the beginning of Esther, is that this king, he needs these men to obey, but he can't even get his own wife to obey him. This would have been totally embarrassing, humiliating to him. And he cannot afford that at his banquet. That can't be the ending to this 187-day feast, given all that's at stake. He cannot overlook her defiance to him. And so he calls together his political cabinet, strategically, his advisors, because again, something must be done. And let's be clear as well. This isn't like he goes over and he's like, oh, like my wife didn't follow what I wanted. Like I need some marriage counseling here. Let's get together and give me some good advice on how to be a better husband. That's not this. This is political. It's totally political because, again, he believes his power is at stake, and now his power has been questioned. And so look what happens. Verse 15. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mumikin said, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials, those in the party, and all the people who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So basically, she has sinned against the empire. For the queen's behavior will be made known to, interesting, he says, it'll be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all of the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. That's his advice. It's his thought, his assessment of the situation. So, again, one of the king's cabinet members, one of his lead political advisors says, this action... We are now in, because of it, we are now in danger of an empire-wide meltdown here. And if you're reading that and thinking, this makes no sense. Isn't this a little bit overblown? Seems a little bit exaggerated, ridiculous? That would be a very correct interpretation of this passage. This is crazy. It's it's insane. First of all, like, you cannot mandate honor. You cannot mandate respect. Right? You can't regulate healthy marriage. But what's going on here, more than anything, what we see is that this is actually exposing the, the insecurities of the leaders of, of Persia. It's, it's, it's exposing their selfishness and their, uh, their arrogant overreach of what they think their powers are able to accomplish. So the author here is painting a very vivid backdrop for us of ungodly power, ungodly wealth, and ungodly arrogance within which God's people need to try to survive. How can God's people survive under this type of leadership? And then the first chapter closes, starting in verse 19. We'll read it through the end. It says this. If it pleases the king, this is Memukin continuing. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. You know, they're all drunk. (laughs) 
And the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in its own language. He gets it all translated. That every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Great strategy, King Xerxes. So we end chapter 1 with Vashti. You can't just dismiss this, because it's a, it's, a, it's a detail and then we move on. But Vashti, this decision that she made, it actually leads her to be stripped of her marriage and her position, her title. She's gone, an outcast now. We don't hear from her again. That's it. She chose not to appear in front of the king that evening, and therefore she was never allowed to see him again. And we can't even imagine what probably happened to her. And so we learn, we learn right out of the gate here that resistance in Persia is futile. Resistance here in this empire, it is useless, even for a queen. But there is also, again, there's some more subtle irony here that shows the flimsiness of worldly power. Because with this edict, with this command, understand what's going on. They were trying to avoid the situation between the king and his wife being known, right? They're trying to like keep it hush-hush and make sure nothing like this can ever happen again. But yet, by the king accepting this advice, this news of what happened is now going to be spread throughout the entire empire. It's just an ironic, and it's actually meant to be a humorous detail of a flawed empire to start this book. That again, shows us that Xerxes is not surrounded by the wisest men. He's actually not as wise as he thinks either. And that his kingdom is actually much more fragile and weak than it appears. He could have this 187-day party. He could have all the riches, all the glory, but it actually is fragile. It's a fragile empire. And then we stop there. We stop there. That's how chapter one ends. And so I I know there's a a lot going on there. There, There's a lot of little details throughout the story. And I think the question, even as I was studying through this, and maybe you're having the same thought, is, okay, so we get through this narrative, and then so what? Why? Why all of these details? Do we have to know, like, 187 days and king's choice wine and what color the pots were and what color the chairs are and you know all these details why does the author even take the time to bring us into the story in this way well the reason for that is is again it's very clear because the author here is setting the stage for us he wants us to see that not even not even the queen is safe in this empire And if she is not safe, who is? With all of this wealth and power and pleasure available to all these leaders of leaders of leaders, this system they had created where they can literally do and say, have whatever you want, anything goes. If that's the environment, what hope do God's people have at all? If even the slightest resistance by your own wife, by your queen, is crushed so dramatically, what hope do God's people have of resisting this empire at all? And so this is written to help us see that this is a very hopeless situation. And so the stage stage is set for us. We have this rich, affluent empire this powerful and glory-hungry king, and no mention of God. It's almost as if the author is saying to us, hold on and watch this. <laughs> but that's Esther 1. You won't talk about 2 until next week. Well, now very briefly, uh, what I want to do is sort of wrap up today by pointing out what I believe we can take from this. Uh, in terms of our own walk in in our own world. Um, What's some application from here? And I believe there is a lot of application, actually, uh, to this text. There's so much I could have said. I could have talked about um, how 
um, his power was, the, the, the power of this empire was fragile, and there's only one true power from God. That, that's relevant to us today. Um, I could have said that um, our actions have consequences. We see that here. Um, I could have said um, the, the temptation to assimilate into culture is real. I could have, could have said that as well. But I narrowed it down to just one simple truth, which I, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know I typically don't do. But it's so important, it's so important to this book, and it's so important to our context that I wanted to just give you one point to walk away with. And so it, here it is. I want us to know, what we learned from Esther, is that God is at work even when we cannot see it. God is at work even when we cannot see it. Now, um, this is certainly a fundamental truth of the whole Bible. It's not unique to Esther, but it is seen perhaps most clearly in this book. And there are actually several hints of this truth uh, throughout Esther 1, our passage today. That just because we cannot see God's hand, just because we cannot see God working, does not mean that he's not at work. That oftentimes, and I'll even say this, most of the time, God is actually at work behind the scenes, arranging all the details of our lives to ensure the good of his people. And what theologians call this is God's providence. Okay? That's a good term for you to write down. God's providence. Esther teaches us a lot about God's providence. God's providence, which is what? God's providence is his ability, God's ability to govern, to rule all creatures, all humans, all actions, all circumstances, in all places, at all times, through the ordinary, everyday happenings of life. Not just on Sunday when we gather together. God is not just here orchestrating this. But every day, in the normal day-to-day, every day throughout the week. So listen, God is ruling all things. We need to know this. He's ruling all things, working out all things for the benefit of his people and the glory of his name. That's his providence. Now, we're going to talk about uh, this a lot more throughout this series. It'll probably come, come up in some form every single week. But the hiddenness of God is a very important theme um, in this book. Again, that he is unseen. And here in chapter 1, uh, we, we see that groundwork, in light of that, groundwork is being laid for what God is going to do in the future. And so what we read today, all of the happenings, every single detail that I shared with you, it's not just like for my enjoyment, it's not just fun historical facts, okay? All of the happenings, all the details that were shared, they were all key to the story, In fact, if they didn't happen, if Esther 1 is gone, the rest of this book would unravel. There would be no story. And what do I mean by that? Well, we have to ask questions like this as we read through Esther. Why did Xerxes throw a seven-day party after the 180 days? Was it necessary? Why did he do that? Um, Why did he invite everyone? Why did he give a drunken request to see his wife, Vashti? Before the people. And why did she refuse? It's a bold thing to do. And where did Memukin get the idea to replace Vashti with someone else? Why not just like an imprisonment or like maybe one of his other wives? Because I'm sure he had them. Why replace her with someone else? You see, we read this chapter today. And if, if you don't know the whole story, you're just left here thinking, what in the world does this have to do with anything? And on one level, on a human level, that's true. That's the right thought. There is just, and this is just an unfortunate story of a 2,500-year-old ancient empire with human events, historical record. There are no miracles here, right? There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no dead being raised to life. There's no blind person gaining sight, no deaf person getting their hearing. Right? None of that is here in the text, and yet... Listen, that's on a human level, but on another level, on God's level, 
Each one of these situations is necessary to make way for Esther, who's not introduced yet, but for Esther to rise to power and to save God's people, which we're going to see she does. So the question for us again is, is all of this that we just read, is it just a coincidence? Is it just happenstance? And I would say, absolutely not. No way. That everything that we are reading and have read is simply the unseen hand of God at work. And it's just the beginning. And we need to see this as well. We need to see this point as well. I think some of us need to hear this, that it's not that God just uses the good stuff in life either. Because what is he using here? What's his vessel to do his work? Is it just good, holy, righteous things? That's not what we see here. We're going to see God is using a seven-day party with a bunch of whatever you want to say going on. He's using a power-hungry king. He's using a, a drunk person's request. He's using foolish advice, all sorts of immorality. All of this, God is using as his primary ingredients to set the stage to bring about the salvation of his people. And listen, this should be a great encouragement to us. And why? Because the very same thing is true in our lives. The very same thing. God takes our mess and does his will. God takes our disaster and works it out for his glory. Right? We mostly, let's be honest, we mostly have no idea what God is doing. We know in a general way. Like, well, he's working everything out for our good. Right? He's coming back. Right? The kingdom of God is growing. We know these things big, very important things, but mostly we have, in terms of the details, we have no idea what God is doing. And God is mostly unseen in our lives, working in the ordinary. And I'm so grateful for Esther because Esther shows us that, unlike any other book in the Bible. See, I think so many times, I know this is true of me, that we are, as followers of Jesus, we are looking for the big happenings in our life. We want the big moment, the big events. We want the burning bush. We want the, uh, the big fish in Jonah. Right? I'm going the wrong way. How do I know? Well, I'm waiting for the fish, right? That's the only way I know if I'm not going God's way, right? We want the chariot of fire. Like if I just live holy enough, maybe the skies will open and he'll take me up and I won't die, right? Like we want the chariot of fire experience. Everyone will know we're like Elijah, right? We want the walking on water experience, right? How many of you, wow, this is not in my notes. How many of you ever gone to like a lake or a beach and you're just like, you know, have you ever done that? You step out and you're like, maybe it's like a pastor thing. I don't know, but I'm like, come on, come on. Just once and I always sink, right? You know, where's your faith? You know, I'm always, yeah, I've done that many times, yeah. <laughs> but in Esther, there, there's none of that big happenings. None of that. You know, for a long time, actually, uh, scholars, including people like Martin Luther, a church father, they read Esther, and uh, they would go before congregations and councils and say, we need to remove Esther from the Bible because God isn't here. But if you understand Esther, that these big happenings aren't there, they're done on purpose. It's a transformative book because it reminds us, I believe, that this is what much of life is like. Esther is very real. It's just about, it's a book that it's just about being faithful in the everyday. God may seem hidden. He may not seem to be there. But the invitation and reminder of Esther is to be patient. Keep trusting, because one of God's primary vehicles for bringing about his ways and his will is not through the miraculous, actually, 
but through the everyday, moment-by-moment faithfulness of his people. And you know, I was thinking about this as well. Often, it's only when we look behind us that we can see what he's doing and what he's done. Or, like, have you ever had that experience? Like, in the middle of life's happening, maybe that's, like, right now even for you. In the middle of life's happening, it seems like chaos, confusion. But then you, as you look back, you're like, wow, like, what, what has God, God done? Right? What, what seemed like a disaster, a disaster has turned into a masterpiece. I mean, I can distinctly, I, I think I could do that over the course of, on a year-to-year basis, but as I look back on my life, I was thinking about that in relation to this exact point, I was just thinking, like, where God has taken me from, it, it's unexplainable, but I couldn't see that in the moment. I mean, I could, I could share with you, actually. I, should I? I will. <laughs> I remember um, I was 17 years old. Um, and there's not a lot to do in upstate New York, especially in the wintertime. And so we would find, um, and I didn't have one living in the house, but we would find um, older brothers to, who are over 21 to buy us adult drinks. Okay? It's high school in upstate New York. But you did. You were outcast if you weren't there. So... Um, I was in a really dark place in my life, and I was there. And I remember it was the winter time, and I was out in the woods, bonfire, and I was with my friends, drinking with my friends. And, um, and actually, I was so angry with God. Um, and I did this on purpose. My parents, um, they love Jesus. Um, very faithful. Um, and they were, they were having a Bible study at their house. And so I went out on purpose. Um, drank too much, and then I came back um, to purposely interrupt their Bible study and to try to cast shame on them. Like, this couple is hosting this Bible study and they're leading, and, but, like, look at their son kind of thing. And so I remember um, I walked back home, um, and I laid on top of my parents' car just looking at the sky, and I was, like, lost. Just, like, I knew what I was doing um, was not just wrong, but I was empty. Um, but I walked into the house, and um, I made a ruckus in the kitchen on purpose. People could hear me. And, um, and so I couldn't even look anybody in the eye, but I just made a disturbance, and then I started to walk uh, towards the stairs. And there was a woman. I don't even remember her name. I'm sure my parents could remind, remind us. They're watching right now. I know that, so they could even put it in the chat. <laughs> they're always there <laughs> watching me it doesn't matter how far I get how far I move away they're, they're always through that lens um, but I remember I forgot her name very faithful woman of prayer and she said uh, my family friends call me Jamie okay and so she yelled out to me Jamie get over here like this she's not my parent never spoken to this person had a conversation in my life so, so I went to her and she says to me, she looks me in the eye, she says, I just want you to know, right now, um, your life is a mess. And you know that. Um, but what God is doing, it's like a tapestry. On the backside, there's all these hoops and disjointed colors, and it doesn't make sense. But someday, you're going to turn over, and you're going to see the incredible masterpiece that God is painting uh, with you and through your life. And I went upstairs, um, and uh, I never forgot that. Um, I, I was walking away from the Lord for several years after that, but I never forgot those words. Never. And I look back, and I think, oh, my goodness, from that laying on the car that night there to now here, um, only God could do this. And all of you, every one of you who knows Jesus, who belongs to Jesus, you have that testimony as well. And you can, 
you could come up here and share that in a very powerful way. The point here in Esther, um, again, it's like our lives in so many ways, it's like an assortment of a bunch of puzzle pieces that look like they belong to different puzzles. I'm sharing this illustration because just recently, I don't know if it's COVID, I like, got really into puzzles. I don't know why. <laughs> I was thinking about this. Like, it just seems like a mess, right? Um, and and like, you can't find the corner, and it's driving you nuts, right? Like, and there's a missing edge piece. And you're thinking, how am I going to take all these pieces and fit it together? How am I ever going to finish this? Life is that way. And the point of Esther is you can't put your life together. You, you can't do it. You can't. But God can, and he is, right now, even when you don't see it. That's the point of Esther. And so hear me, just because we don't, you don't see him acting and moving in your life does not mean that he's not active and working and moving in your life. And when you realize that, when you truly grasp that, understand that, I promise you, it'll change your life It'll give, it'll give meaning and purpose to every single day of your life. It'll give purpose to every single one of your highs and every single one of your lows. It'll bring hope in hopeless situations. It'll bring life and fervency, fire again to your prayers. And it'll help you to continually fix your gaze and your eyes on the Lord. Because again, we know that he works through our simple, very simple, everyday trust, our ordinary circumstances, and he even works in our failures to bring about his glorious purposes. So again, maybe you're in a season right now where where God seems absent from you. You're wrestling with the invisibility of God while you're in the middle of a real struggle having issues with uh, your children or maybe issues with having children, prolonged singleness, and why? Because you desire to have companionship. Maybe it's a marriage that isn't working out the way that you thought it would. You're on the brink of separation, or some of you are right there, struggling to find a job, some of you, or, or actually finding purpose in your job and in your career because it seems useless and meaningless. Maybe some of you, you've been praying for a friend or a coworker or a family member to just to trust Jesus, and you've been praying for a long time, and you still haven't seen that individual move even an inch, a centimeter. Or you've asked God, like, what should I do next? I, I want to follow you genuinely. I want to go into the places you want me to go. So where should I go? And he has been silent. He seems absent. The question for us, and I think Esther brings this question out for us, is what is your response in those moments? Have you compromised your faith at all? Have you turned from the Lord? When you don't see God is working in your life, what is your response? Again, is it compromise? Is it moving towards the things of the world? Or is it patience? Is it trust? Is it hope-filled faith? Believing that God is at work even when you and I don't see it. Because he is. The book of Esther helps us to see the unseen God. We just need faith. Amen? Let me pray for you.